Okay. <clears throat> One Sunday in February 1983, I was um, sitting in the bar of the Gledhowe Country Club in South Africa with my girlfriend, Kirsty, And uh, we were, we'd been in South Africa for about 18 months. And we were feeling quite homesick. We, we, we hadn't seen our friends for 18 months. We hadn't seen our families for 18 months. And um, we were sitting there having a couple of drinks and saying, oh, it'd be so nice if we could go home and see our friends and our families. But we were absolutely flat broke and we, there was just no possibility of doing it. And then this really cunning idea appeared, came into our heads. We said, if, if we announced our engagement to be married... The families would never let us just get married out here. They would pay for us to go home and get married. And they'd probably even pay for us to have a big party and invite all our friends as well. And uh, about three seconds later, I was on the floor on one knee and I proposed to Kirsty. And she said yes. <laughs> and, and we... <laughs> And we drove back to, we drove back to um, the, uh, the beach cottage where I was living. Kirsty was living in Durban at the time. We drove back to the cottage where I was living. And um, we wrote letters to our parents saying, great news, we've just got engaged. And, uh, and for us, a new life had begun. A completely new life had begun. The Apostle Paul, who was one of Jesus' great followers, um, writing to the Christians in Corinth in about 50 A.D., describes another kind of new life. He says, those who become Christians become new persons. They're not the same anymore, for the old life has gone and a new life has begun. So Paul talks about those who become Christians. But what does it mean to become a Christian? The word Christian has come to mean a number of things over the years. Some people simply use it to describe someone as a nice person. Oh, they're a very Christian person. Just meaning that they're a nice person. But clearly that's not the original meaning of the word Christian. Some people would say, well, I was born in a Christian country or a Christian um, community. I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. But actually, if you think about it, being born in a Christian country or community or family, whatever, really doesn't make you a Christian any more than being born in a McDonald's would make you a hamburger. It doesn't actually add up. It doesn't make sense. Some people say, well, look, I believe in God, so that makes me a Christian. But of course, Muslims believe in God, Hindus believe in God, Jews believe in God. Lots and lots of people believe in God, but that doesn't make them Christians. In fact, the Bible even says that the devil knows that God exists, but obviously that doesn't make him a Christian. So what does it mean to be a Christian? To be a Christian is to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's where the word comes from, Christians, Christians. It's to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, experiences of becoming a Christian vary enormously. They're different for every single person who becomes a Christian. Some people have quite dramatic experiences and could say to the, even to the day, the day that they know, that they came to faith, if you like, that they, that they had faith. And for others, it's a very gradual process. Some people will say, well, 
I've never known a time in my life when I wasn't a believer. And so, and so experiences very widely. In fact, interestingly, Christian research says that about 70% of people who come to faith do so over a long period of time in a slow process. And about 30% of people have quite a sudden, um, often referred to as a conversion or something. But no, no one is better than the other. It's a bit like... It's a bit like taking a train from London to Paris, I suppose. And uh, if you were actually wide awake and looking out the window when the train came up from the tunnel under the, under the, under the, uh, um, the channel, you would know the moment that you were in France. But if you dozed off on the train on the way um, to, the, to, the, to the channel and you woke up and you saw the countryside going by, it might take quite a bit of time before it dawns on you that you're in France. Oh, look, yes, those houses look a bit different. Oh, the signs look funny, you know. And that you'd, you'd, it would dawn on you gradually that you were in another country. It's, I mean, that's a, it's a simple analogy, but that's, if you like, another analogy. The important thing is not whether we have a dramatic experience of coming to faith or whether it's a long, slow process, but whether we know, whether we have faith or not. That's the important thing. The Apostle John writes this. Yet to all who received him, in other words, to who, who received Jesus, who believed in Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. In other words, having faith in, in Christ is having the closest possible relationship with God. We become children of God. Now, sometimes the Bible uses the analogy of, of children and, and parent and father, and sometimes it uses the analogy of husband and wife. And relationships, of course, are exciting. They're the most exciting thing in our lives. And I would say that the most exciting relationship of all is our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's interesting. We always, send, we always put a, um, um, a questionnaire to everyone who comes on the Alpha course. And um, one of the questions on the questionnaire is, would you have called yourself a Christian when you began the course? And we've had some interesting answers in the past. Some people have said, one person has said, yes, but without any real experience of a relationship with God. Another said, sort of. Another said, mm, in inverted commas. Another said, ish. Another said, yes, although looking back, possibly no. Now, suppose, suppose you came up to my wife, Kirsty. Um, and tonight and said to her, Kirsty, are you married? And she said, yes, but without any real experience of a relationship. <laughs> or, not sure. Or, yes, although looking back, possibly no. <laughs> it, w- it wouldn't make any sense, would it? In fact, we, in fact, we can know if we're in a relationship with God. And God wants us to be confident of that relationship with him. But on what is that confidence based? And I'm going to look at that in three ways, three things, perhaps a bit like the legs of a tripod, each one, if you like, um, supporting the other. First of all, it's based on facts and not on feelings. If you were to ask me, um, taking the marriage analogy, if you were to ask me, how do you know, or how do I know that you're married? then there are a number of things that I could do or say. But one of them is to get out this marriage certificate. And the marriage certificate says, in words, that Kirsty and I 
were married in Bletchingley Village Church um, on the 19th of November, 1983. That's, that's what the bit of paper says. And if you said, how do you know that you are a Christian, if you like? How do you know? How can you be sure of your faith? Then I would point to another document, which is the Bible. The Bible being what Christians feel is the inspired word of God. And so this book confirms to me that I'm a Christian. I believe what it says. And it's based on facts. You'll remember, um, those of you who were here in week one, we looked extensively at the, at the, at the background of the New Testament manuscripts, um, uh, their, their authenticity and reliability, and, and so on. And so one leg of the tripod is that it's based on facts and not primarily on feelings, because our feelings can be very fickle things. Um, it reminds me of a day many years ago when I was invited to um, crew on a boat that was in the Round the Island race. And if you know what that is, it goes, it's a race that goes round the Isle of Wight in one day. It's one of the largest entrances of yachts in the world. It had about 2,000, 3,000 boats enter the race. Um, on this particular day, the wind was blowing very strongly, and it was, uh, it was very exciting. Some boats were colliding, and other, you know, it, was, it, was, it was very exciting. But I was on this boat, and to be honest, I don't think we expected to do very well. But it happened that we either we just got the good wind or we just lucky. Anyway, we suddenly found ourselves passing in our class of boat. You had a colour flag on, on your boat, depending on what class you were. And we had a white flag for the class that we were in. And as we went round the island, we kept passing more and more boats with white flags on. Oh, and we were sort of saying, wow, this is great. We are fantastic. We are great. We are the world's sailors. We are. We're doing really well. And it went on and we just passed it. And we, not, not a single white flag came past us. We were, by the... By halfway through the afternoon, we thought we were going to win our class. And we were just congratulating each other like mad and telling each other what great sailors we were. And as we rounded the easternmost point around the NAB Tower, um, something terrible happened. Our steering gear broke. And all of a sudden, we were completely adrift. There was nothing we could do. If you lose your, your rudder, there was absolutely nothing you could do in a boat. And so we were stuck in the middle of the main shipping lane... And one by one, all these boats with white flags went past us towards the finishing line. And we felt so stupid because we had just felt so good about ourselves. And one moment, we felt like we were champion round the world sailors. And the next minute, we felt like complete losers. And the fact is that we weren't either of those things. We were just an ordinary bunch of people sailing a boat. So the point is, our feelings are not a very good litmus test of who we are. They go up and down depending on what's going on around us and on our moods. And if we applied that to our faith, we'd be on very wobbly ground, wouldn't we? On a good day, we'd be saying, oh yes, I believe. I, I'm, I'm, I believe. My faith is strong. And then if we felt a bit down the next day, we'd go, no, I don't really believe today. It's, you know. and, and so we base our faith on facts and not primarily on feelings. And in this book, in the Bible, are the most wonderful promises um, of God. And let's, let's turn to one of those now. Um, it's on page 1,235. It's, very, it's in the very last book of the Bible. It's very near the end. 1,235. So, uh, sorry, 1,236 over the page. Page. 
and it's Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. So it's halfway down the page on the left-hand side of 1, 2, 3, 6. And this is a letter written by the Apostle John, but he's describing Jesus speaking. And he says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Holman Hunt, who was a 19th century pre-Raphaelite artist, painted a picture about this verse, which is going to come up on the screen now. There we are. Um, he painted a picture um, about this. And, it, and it, there are two or three... There are, he painted it two or three times. One of the... One of the versions hangs in St. Paul's, and someone I was talking to the other day has seen another version, Jane has seen another version recently. Um, but, um, and it's called Light of the World, Jesus' Light of the World. And he's standing at this door, and he's knocking. And, and that door represents your life and my life. And this particular door has never been opened, which is why there are kind of weeds and plants growing up it. And, um, and Jesus is knocking on the door of our lives, and he's saying, I want to come in. So this picture represents the fact that Jesus stands at the door of every person's life, and he knocks and says, I'd like to come in. Someone who was looking at this picture said to Holman Hunt, he said, there's something wrong with your painting, because there is no handle on the door. Why is there no handle on the door? You, you know, it's surely a mistake. And Holman Hunt said, no, he said, that's deliberate, he said. Jesus doesn't force his way into anyone's life. We have to open the door from the inside and invite him in. It requires us to open the door. But his promise in this verse is that if we will invite him in, he will come in. I will come in. Another promise is, um, of, of Jesus is that I'm always with you. Uh, once he comes in, he's always with us. Of course, we're not always talking to him. Just like in an office, you may have um, someone else working with you in the office. They may, they're there all the time, you're aware of their presence, but you aren't necessarily talking to them all of the time. Of course, some of the time, we are in prayer, which is something we're going to look at next week. Another promise is, I give them eternal life. Um, in the last two weeks, we covered some of the evidence, um, and we talked about the event of the resurrection but what are the implications of Jesus coming back to life? Well, there are many, but here are three. The resurrection assures us about the past, that what Jesus did for us on the cross was effective. Because if he'd just died and been buried and that was it, none of us would know that he was the Son of God. But the resurrection assures us of his victory over death on the cross. Secondly, it assures us about the present, that Jesus is alive. Jesus came back from the dead. He didn't die again. Jesus is alive. He's with our Heavenly Father, but he's alive. God's power is with us. And thirdly, the resurrection assures us about the future, that there is life beyond the grave. History isn't meaningless or cyclical. It's moving towards a glorious climax. And this book, the Bible, assures us 
of our future the moment we make that invitation and invite Jesus into our lives. That after this life, we'll go to a place where there is no more suffering, no more pain, no more crying, no more separation from those we love. C.S. Lewis, um, the great Christian writer, at the end of, of his book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, uses the analogy of school terms and holidays to explain it like this. The term is over, he says. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. All their lives in this world had been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Isn't that fantastic? The Apostle Paul wrote, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So those are the promises, some of the promises of God, on which we base our assurance and our faith. (coughs) The second leg of the tripod, we could say, is the the work of Jesus, what Jesus did. Um, Going back to the marriage analogy, of course, if you said, how do we know you're married? I could say, well, I've got my marriage certificate. But I could also look back to and talk about the event itself, which took place on the 19th of November, 1983, when Kirsty and I stood on the steps of Bletchingley Parish Church and made our marriage vows. And our assurance that we're Christians is not only based on a document, but on an event which actually took place when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And you'll remember again from week one that that was written about not just in the Bible, but by Jewish historians, by Roman historians, um, Our assurance is based on an event, a real event in history. Just, um, if I can ask you to grab your Bibles a moment and turn to page 1133. And we're going to look at, it's, uh, this is a letter that Paul the Apostle wrote to the Christians in Rome. And we're going to look at chapter 6. And verse 23. So it's, it's up at the top, well, it's on the right-hand top corner, just before chapter 7, the last verse. Because last week, we looked at the first half of this verse, for the wages of sin is death. But this week, we're going to look at the second half of the, of the verse, which is the good news, if you like. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And some versions say the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know what you think when someone says, oh, take it, it's a gift, it's a, it's a free gift, or it's free. Perhaps sometimes you suspect there might be a catch to it. Often those things that we get through the mail, you pick them up and it says, free this, free that. But you know that if you read the small print, For long enough, you'll find the catch. And sometimes people think there's a catch. But with God, there is no catch. The gift is completely free. But it's not cheap. It cost Jesus his life. But how do we receive this gift if we want to? There are two main ways 
And one of them is quite a, um, I don't know, churchy word, if you like, or it's, which is repentance. And I'll explain what it means. Repentance is, means, it means admitting that we have a need. It means admitting that we've done things that are wrong. And it means saying sorry to God for doing those things that are wrong and asking for his forgiveness. Literally, it's a Greek word that means changing our minds. In other words, we're going in this direction and we decide, we change our minds and we turn around and we go in the other direction. It means changing our minds. <clears throat> about, and it means changing our minds about the things that we do wrong in our lives and deciding to go in a different direction. That's what repentance means. Some people say, yeah, but oh, if I have to give up everything that's wrong, won't that ruin my fun? And the answer is that I don't think God ever asks us to give up things in our lives unless ultimately they will be bad for us, that they'll do us harm. With some things, that's obvious. Um, the reason we try to help people get off heroin is because it may feel incredibly good at the time, but we know long term it's going to wreck their lives and kill them. Some, some other things are not so obvious. Someone on an Alpha course um, once said to a very wise person, yeah, I'm not sure whether I want to try this Christianity thing because it might, it might ruin my fun. It might, might destroy my fun. And the very wise person said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you try it out for six months and if you don't like how your life is going, you can get all your sins back again. <laughs> it's an interesting thought though, isn't it? So repentance means turning away from the things that will harm us and other people. And the second way we receive this free gift is through faith, the subject of our talk, if you like. What does faith mean? Well, it means putting our trust in a person and what he's done for us. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. Another person, I've, you, some of you may have heard this before because I sometimes use it in, in, in talks. Another person who, who asked people to trust him was a, a man called Jean-Francois Gravelet, who was better known as Blondin. He was a famous acrobat and tightrope walker and he used to walk right the way across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope suspended 150 feet above the falls. And uh, it was 1,100 feet long and he would, he would cross it blindfold, he would do all sorts of tricks. Sometimes he even carried a little primer stove out to the centre of the tightrope and cooked an egg on it and ate his breakfast. Um, but one of his tricks was to take a wheelbarrow with the, the tyre taken off so the rim would run along the wire. And he would take a wheelbarrow all the way across the 1,100 feet of the Niagara Falls and back. And the crowds used to come and watch him, they used to pay to watch him. They used to have a grandstand there set up for everyone to watch. And one of his tricks, one day he was there and there was a royal party out from the UK had come and, and as part of their trip around America they decided to, to come and see um, Blondin doing his thing. And, uh, and he had his wheelbarrow and he took a huge great sack of potatoes and he stuck it in the wheelbarrow and he wheeled it all the way across the wire, 1,100 feet and all the way back again. And the crowd roared and they clapped and they said, fantastic, that's amazing, that's amazing. And, uh, and then Blondin turned around to the crowd <clears throat> and, he, and he walked up to, it was the Duke of Norfolk who was out, and he walked up to the Duke of Norfolk and he said, Duke, he said, he said do you think I could take a person across it in my wheelbarrow? And the Duke, who'd just seen him take a large sack of potatoes, said, well, yes, I, I believe you could. 
and Blondin said, hop in. And the Duke suddenly thought of several good reasons why he was late for another appointment. And, and he turned down the offer. And Blondin turned to the crowd and he said, who's going to get into my wheelbarrow? And, and the whole place was silent. No one would move. And eventually, this little old lady came out of the crowd and she walked up and she got into his wheelbarrow. And he wheeled her all the way across the falls and all the way back again. And it was Blondin's mother. And the difference is that everybody in that crowd, no one in that crowd doubted that Blondin could do it. They all believed he could do it. But only his mother would put her trust in him. And faith means putting our trust. It means actually taking, doing something, stepping into that wheelbarrow and discovering that Jesus Christ is trustworthy. That's the second leg of the tripod. And finally, the last part. The third leg of the tripod is the witness of the Holy Spirit. And again now, um, if you ask me, going back to the marriage analogy, if you said, how do we know that you're married? I could find my marriage certificate again. I could wave that at you. Um, I could, I could uh, uh, talk about the event that occurred back in 1983 when we got married. But also... I could point to the experience of having been married to Kirsty for nearly 30 years. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God's Spirit, his Holy Spirit, comes to live in us. And going back to the picture of, of Jesus knocking on that door, when a person opens that door up and invites him in, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And when that happens we actually begin to experience a relationship with God, just like a relationship with someone else. And that relationship can change and transform our lives. Sometimes people say, I'm not sure if I want to be changed. Good question. Let's just quickly turn to page 1172. One one seven two, and this is a letter written to the um, Galatian Christians, um, and we're going to look at chapter five and verse twenty-two and twenty-three. So the question we're asking is, what is going to happen if I invite Jesus into my life and the Holy Spirit comes to live within me, and that means I'm going to change? What's, what, what, what's going to happen? And Paul is explaining what, what the result of having the Spirit in us, the fruit of the Spirit is, is the result of the, of, of the Spirit being in us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In other words, those are the ways in which we will change, we'll become more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more kind, and so on. Who, who wouldn't want to change in those ways? So those are the ways in which we can be transformed. Now, of course, it all comes down to the raw material. So some people say, oh yes, but why isn't it, why, then why aren't all Christians all wonderful people 
and everybody else, not wonderful people. Well, it's down to the starting material. I think wherever we start from, faith in Christ transforms us into a better person. We might start, some of us, from quite a low level. Um, some of us may start, like probably you, but you'd be, be right up here. Um, but uh, we all start from a different place. And it doesn't happen overnight. First, our character begins to change. Um, I'll never forget discussing this with a friend who came round to have a coffee um, at our home about a year after I first came to faith. And her name was Christine. And she was having a coffee with us. And, um, and she, said, she said to me in the kitchen, sitting across the kitchen table, she said, so tell me, Pads, how, have you, how do you think you've changed since you came to faith? And I thought this was a bit of an embarrassing question. Well, to, to answer myself. But my daughter Kylie was standing by the, by the oven the other side of the kitchen. So I said, Kylie, how do you think I've changed since I came to faith? And without any hesitation, she said, Daddy, she said, you don't get angry the way you used to. Now, you might say, damned by faint praise. But actually, it was rather a nice thing for Kylie to say, wasn't it? She'd seen that change in me. Also, our relationships, our relationship with God changes. Um, before I came to faith, Jesus was a name that I just heard. It was banded around. I probably used it as a swear word from time to time. And after I came to faith, an extraordinary thing happened. I would find uh, the radio would be on or something, and I'd suddenly, somebody would suddenly mention Jesus' name, and I'd suddenly I'd be all interested, and I'd sort of pick up on it. And, um, and sometimes I'd hear people talking about Jesus, and I'd feel quite emotional. Um, and, uh, and I found that I was just developing a sort of relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And then our relationships with other people change as well. Our relationships with other Christians. I mean, to be honest, until I came to faith, I probably used to steer clear of people of faith. And when I, after I came to faith, I discovered that there's a whole worldwide family I suddenly belong to. I would be on a business trip in Africa or, in, or, or somewhere else. And when I learned that the person I was with also had a faith, suddenly we were like brothers or brother and sister. Um, and uh, we, we were really welcomed. And it was wonderful to discover this huge worldwide family. And other people as well. I mean, to be honest, I used to be quite a selfish person before I came to faith. I definitely was one of those people who thought about number one lots of times before I thought about anybody else. And after I came to faith, it was strange, but I would go into sort of go shopping in Reading and, 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 you know, just go into a shop just like I normally would. And I'd actually notice the person behind the counter. I'd, I'd start seeing their face. I'd start noticing whether they looked stressed or whether they looked worried. Or, um, and I would start to find, my, find myself caring for them, strange though it sounds. And I think that's the Holy Spirit that working inside us, drawing us into that relationship with God and, and making us more loving towards other people. Paul, the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And you know, just over 12 years ago was the first time that I was touched by God's Spirit in a little thatched roof church in South Africa. I've been taken there by a Christian friend. I certainly wasn't a believer at the time. And during the service, I had a deep, spiritual experience and I think I must have just opened that door a fraction I think I must have just realized that it was there and opened that door a fraction and said 
Why don't you come in? And soon after that, I went on an Alpha course back here in Reading, and I learned that it was through what Jesus had done for me on the cross that I was able to come into a relationship with God. And so I decided to open that door right up and said, actually, you know, I want to do life with you. And since then, I feel as though I've come home. I feel as though I'm in the family where I was always meant to have been. As Paul said to the early Christians, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. And I'm going to finish there because it's definitely time to finish. Um, but I'd like to, I'd like, if it's all right with you, I'd like to just finish again with a prayer. And I, I'd like to pray a prayer that would make it possible for anyone here this evening who would like to perhaps take an initial step of opening that door that Jesus is standing and knocking on. Um, please, this is entirely... You may not feel like doing that at all. That's fine. So I'm going to pray the prayer. And if you want to pray it along with me, silently in your heart, you can do that. But we're going to pray a prayer, really sort of opening up that door. And it involves three things. Repentance, that we talked about. Turning away from the things that are wrong. Faith, taking that step of faith, getting into that wheelbarrow. Trusting, not Blondin, but Jesus. And receiving his spirit. So let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for all the things that I've done wrong in my life. Please forgive me. I now turn from all of the things that I know to be wrong. Thank you that you died for me on the cross so that I could be forgiven and set free. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit and be with me forever. Amen.